Well, if you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, turning a new leaf, if you will, over a new leaf in our study of this great letter. And Hebrews chapter 9 brings more of the same, more of stuff that we should be used to by now in our study of this letter. Our study has, has been requiring us to stretch ourselves from the very beginning, to try to understand concepts that are way removed from what we normally think about. When we, it calls us to enter into this, this religious world that is far different from our world, even at the level of the physical things involved, like the objects that were important in this ancient world and the, the, the layout of their worship space and all, pretty much everything that could be different was different. And it's been, it's been a challenge for us to sort of get into that and to see it for what it is to see it for how our author, the author of this letter, wants us to see it as a series, as, as, as an old system designed to point us to Jesus, to help us love him more. Now, one of the things that we've been stretching ourselves to try to understand for the past couple months, really, is the notion of priesthood, of Jesus serving as a priest. We don't think of priests that often in our world. I mean, I, I certainly don't. I, I don't wake up in the morning feeling a need for a priest and, and I think I'm in good company here. It's not something that immediately resonates. We've had to work hard to try to see how it really is something we need, even if we haven't thought about that before. This morning, we turn to a new object or image in this letter that I think is just as foreign to us as the priesthood. It's intimately connected with it. It has to do with what priests offer, with how priests stand between us and the God that we've offended Today we turn to the subject of blood, of blood. We're going to be talking a lot about blood for the next month or so. The next big chunk of this letter is all about it. It is all about blood. It's, it's really an image that's central to the whole Bible. Have you ever noticed how bloody the Bible is as a book? Think about the Old Testament, how blood gets swiped over, uh, over doorposts, how it gets poured out of sacred bowls, how it gets sprinkled over holy objects in the temple. It's that world that Hebrews dives directly into. It's that, that pool of images that Hebrews draws from directly to help us understand how Jesus connects to what came before. Now, now at one level, if you grew up in church like I did, you're used to talking about blood, right? You're used to reading about it and to singing about it. But at another level, even for me, someone who grew up hearing a lot about blood, there's some disconnect when you, when you get to that line in the song where you all of a sudden are singing about how beautiful this blood is, how precious it is. It's easy to sing about God's love, right? I think we all immediately connect with that concept. We sing about his fatherhood, and we know what it is to be loved by a father. Those are easy to connect with. And then all of a sudden, we're talking about this blood of Jesus that's supposed to be at the center of all of this. And, and for me, anyway, a lot of times there's this instinctive disconnect from my heart when I'm singing about it. I'm not moved by it. I'm, I'm almost put off a little bit by it just from the, the oddness or the weirdness of it. And one of my favorite hymns of all time is, a, is the hymn called There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. I love that hymn, but I'll be honest. The first line of that hymn is grotesque. 
Have you thought about the imagery? A fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, taking a bath in a fountain of blood, lose all their guilty stains. Well, that's, there's, that's gross. I mean, it just is. I love it. I mean, I, I love that hymn. But, but uh, taken on its own, I think if you, if you were to have walked in here never having been to church before and you sang that li- those lines, that's an image that we just don't connect with in the way that even 200 years ago the author of that hymn connected with it, much less with the way that, that our, our, our uh, subjects of this letter and, and the system that they're talking about would have connected. So, at one level, if we're going to get into the next two chapters of Hebrews, we're going to have to overcome a, a serious disjunctiveness between what comes natural to us and what came natural in the world of this text. For us, I think blood is not a pleasant subject. It's the province of cheap horror flicks. You know, it's, it, we think about Carrie. You know, we think about horror movies. We think about movies like Braveheart. It's a, it's a primitive thing. We think of people who are bloodthirsty, and that's not a good thing. That's not something any of us want to be true. And even those of us who, who may enjoy movies like that, uh, who aren't put off by violence or whatever, it, even, even those who are into, into movies like Braveheart, no one's hankering for those days, right? Those days were, were, they were, they were horrible. That lifestyle where that kind of bloodthirstiness came normal is not something any of us want to return to. So then how do we, how do we make sense of the fact that, that blood, something that is not immediately uh, attractive to us as a concept, is now presented to us as one of the main reasons that we should trust in Jesus, as one of the best things about him? Well, we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about it in the next few weeks. I want, to, I want to begin talking about it, though, by just reminding you of another image that we used earlier when we were talking about the priesthood, an image that comes to us courtesy of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, who, who is famous for introducing products that no one could have even imagined before he introduced them, things like the iPad or the original iPhone. And one of the things in the, in the biography of Steve Jobs that Walter Isaacson wrote last year one of the things that Jobs addresses is the fact that he never really got into market research. He wasn't about giving people products that they already wanted. What he wanted to do was figure out what they needed, whether they recognized it or not, and then show them this product and prove to them that they needed it. Here's what he said. Talking about market research, Jobs says, some people say give the customers what they want. That's not my approach. Our job is to figure out what they're going to want before they do. I think Henry Ford once said, If I'd asked customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. People don't know what they want until you show it to them. Our task is to read things that are not yet on the page. Now, in a sense, I think that's exactly what the Bible offers to us. It offers to us a set of of products almost, a set of things that God has provided to us for our good, that, that, in our, that on our own, in our own minds, as products of our own time and place, we don't even know instinctively that we need these things, but we do. We need them. We can't live without them. I want you to keep an open mind if blood is off-putting to you, because what we're going to try to see today and in the rest of, of our study of this section for the next month or so is how precious the blood of Jesus is and how apart from it we don't have any hope. That's where we're headed this morning. What I want to do today, I want to take three steps, starting at sort of the forest level of this issue of blood and how we relate to it, and particularly the blood of Jesus, and then work our way down into the trees of our passage 
and, and how it picks up this subject. I want to start by simply asking or showing why blood is necessary. Why is it so important to the Bible? And then next say why Jesus' blood specifically is necessary. And then to show what Jesus' blood accomplishes, how it does what it set out to do. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, if you found the passage, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read from uh, verse 1 through verse 14 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to start by taking up this by taking up a simple question why is blood even necessary why is blood necessary i don't think like like we've been saying already this morning i don't think we can take it for granted anymore that our peers or maybe even that we ourselves get the significance of a blood sacrifice so i think to 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 set us up well for a month of talking about blood we really have to ask this basic question why did blood matter I think to understand why blood matters, we have to ask even an earlier question. And that is this question of why punishment matters. Because blood was not random. Blood was a symbol of divine punishment. So why? What we've been saying all along in our study of this section of Hebrews, when we've been talking about the priesthood and why that matters, is that there is a pure and joyful and honest and open 
life-shaping relationship that we were made for. We were created for it. And apart from it, we don't know ourselves. We aren't even fulfilled as human beings. And yet we have been unfaithful in that relationship. We have betrayed our maker, the one who made us to love him. And because we have broken that relationship, because we have been unfaithful in it, it's not possible anymore for that relationship to be, to be fully healed without addressing what went, what went down. Just like in any human relationship, if there is a breach of it, if there's a wrong in it, there is no way to heal that relationship without calling it out and addressing it, without working through it, processing it together. So in this case, there's no way to heal our relationship with God unless we call the problem for what it is and address it. But here's the thing. The nature of our rebellion and infidelity to God is so severe. It is such a weighty thing that there's no healing of the relationship actually apart from punishment. That God, according to to Scripture, would stop being who he is if he was not faithful to punish what we'd done. He would be unjust, just like a judge who decided to let a murderer walk clean just out of the goodness of his heart. That is not a gracious and loving judge. That is, a, that is an unjust and unworthy judge. God is in a similar position with us. He can't just pretend like it didn't happen. He has to address this infidelity in our relationship with him. It can be tough for us to swallow the consistent biblical message that God can't look the other way, that he can't just forgive us. And I think the key, though, to understanding why he can't just look the other way is to see that if he were to look over sin and act like it didn't happen, what he would be saying, implicitly what he would be saying, is that that sin didn't matter. He would be saying that it wasn't a weighty thing for us to sin against him. What he would be saying is that he is not a weighty thing. What our sin does is betray him. But what it also does is make a statement about him. What it says about him is that he's not trustworthy, is that the commands that he's given us, the lifestyle that he calls us to, isn't one worthy of our, of our trust. He's not worthy of being obeyed. He is not who he claims to be. That's what we're saying to him when we choose self-rule over God's rule. And God has got to set that message straight. He can't allow that to hang out there. That's got to be, that, that, is, that statement has got to be made clear. That's where punishment comes in. Because punishment is nothing more than a statement of the value of what was done. Now, there's, there's, there's no way to get this fully, I think, to, to really understand what it is to sin against God and, and be punished for it. But I think there's a parallel in our experience that helps us get closer. Think about punishment just in our own legal system. Isn't punishment always supposed to fit the crime? Isn't that the saying that we, that we all have used probably time and again? Punishment is supposed to match the crime. It is a, punishment is a statement about the value of what was done. So if you lie to your child about what happened to their goldfish, that carries a different weight than lying to the government under oath. Unless you're Roger Clemens and you lied about steroids. Somehow that seems to have about the same weight as lying about goldfish. If you betray a coworker at work, that's a certain kind of evil, right? But if you betray your military during wartime, you get hanged for it. If you squash a roach in your house, that's one thing. Nobody cares because it doesn't matter. If you kill a child, it'll cost you your life. These acts 
have different values, different weights. And punishment is meant to, to, to reflect the value of what was done. If it weren't the case, we'd label our system unjust because our system would be failing to properly weigh the value in what's been done. Now, similarly, when we opt to rule ourselves rather than to allow God to rule us in the way that we were made, we're also making a statement about him, about what he's worth, and he's got to set that straight. And the only, it requires a punishment that's going to match the crime, that's going to reflect the weightiness of disobeying the God of the universe. That's the consistent message about the importance of God's punishment of sin that comes through through the whole Bible. And that is the reason that blood is necessary. Blood is necessary as a testimony, as a kind of statement on the value of what it is to rebel against God. In the ancient world, even more clearly than today, blood represented the life of the creature. That's why blood was so important. It was a symbol for the life of that creature, for everything that that creature had. Listen to, listen to the way God describes the importance of blood. In the Old Testament, where he's setting up the system of blood sacrifice, this is what he says about why that matters so much. This is in Leviticus 17.11. The Lord says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Do you see how, what that statement about blood indicates? It's, blood, is, blood matters. It's not, a, it's not random. Blood matters because it's the whole thing. It's, it's the whole life of that creature. It's everything that they have. The reason blood matters as a sacrifice for our sin against God is that our sin against God is so weighty that it costs everything. Now, Think, think back again to our legal system. There are certain kinds of things that we do that you can just buy your way out of. And I mean not in a corrupt kind of way. You just pay the fine and you move on. It's a limited offense. It's not very weighty. So let's say you're driving your car 10 miles over the speed limit and you get busted for it. You're going to pay 50 bucks or whatever to pay your ticket and then you move on. That's, that's, a, that's a limited offense that you can buy your way out of. If you kill someone with your car while driving under the influence, that's going to cost you your life because the, the thing done, the offense done, costs everything. You can't buy your way out of it. There's no, there's no money that can be put, uh, no money value that can be put on that life that you took. It costs your blood in one sense. Even if, even if you get life in prison, what they're taking away from you is everything because that's how valuable that was. So when you think about blood, bottom line is this. This is what we're building to. When you think about blood, as we talk about it for the next month and why it's necessary, try to detach yourself from the weirdness of the system and how different it is from what we do on a weekly basis, and try to focus in on the fact that blood represents everything. To give up your blood is to give up your life. Our offense against God costs everything. Now, to get, to get to, the, to the direct point of our text, why is Jesus' blood necessary? We've talked about blood, why it matters, why the Old Testament is so full of it. But why now does the New Testament, and particularly our book of Hebrews, pick up this theme of blood and say that Jesus' blood does something that, that nothing else can? That's the point of, of the main point of this entire passage we read this morning. 
Jesus' blood is necessary because no other blood is valuable enough. Hebrews 9 gives us something we've been seeing all along. Contrasts, comparisons. We've been seeing our author compare Jesus to all sorts of things that people might be tempted to take over Jesus. And here we get one more. We get this old system set up in the, in the earliest books of the Old Testament. A system of tents and tabernacles and curtains and, and objects and blood sacrifices compared to Jesus and what his blood accomplishes. Jesus' blood is necessary because the old system wasn't enough. That's the point of our passage. I want to walk you through the details. The, the first ten verses really are put there to make the point that everything that was going on in the Old Testament was incomplete from the beginning. That the whole thing as it was set up by God himself was meant to show that it was incomplete from the beginning. The first five verses, chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, describe the physical layout of the, what's called the old tabernacle. And then the next verses, verses 6 to 10, describe what's done in that physical layout. So we have the, the sort of painting a picture of it for us on one thing, and then on one side of the text. And then over here we have him describing the activities and the rituals that went on inside that space. If you've got a study Bible, you've probably got a great illustration of this if you want to take a look at it while we walk through it. Uh, the, the, the section of the Old Testament where it might be found is in um, Exodus chapter 25 and 26. If you flip over there in your study Bible, you probably got a nice little picture. You might want to follow along. He sets up this space for us in these first verses. A tent or a tabernacle was prepared, he tells us. It was sketched out by God himself. It began with this first open room. When you walked through the, the, the outer walls of the tabernacle, you walked into a big open area called the, the Holy Place. And it was in this area that the priests were constantly doing rituals to purify people. He describes the objects that were there, things like this lampstand, and, and some sense of how big it was and what was going on there. But then there was this inner, this inner curtain, he talks about. Something that revealed, or that, that concealed, rather, what he calls the most holy place. The next verses explain to us why that's so important, why this division of space mattered so much. It mattered because of the limitations that it symbolized. Out in the outer court, in the holy place, priests were there every day. They were doing stuff that just had to, had to be done all the time. And pretty much any of them could go in there. It wasn't a big deal to get into that, to that part. But the inner place, the inner place... The most holy place is a place that only the high priest goes, only that one person. And he only went once a year. And when he went, he had to take blood with him because he was going in to the presence of God himself. And what he took had to symbolize just how severe it was that we had broken ourselves off from that presence. That's the basic layout and what was going on. Two physical spaces, one set of activities for the outside, another much more limited set of activities for the inside. And in case you're getting lost in the details, look at verse 8. That explains all you need to know. By this, by this separation into two rooms, by this fact that, that the high priest goes into the holy, most holy place one time in the year, by all of that, by the whole package, here's the point. The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. According to this arrangement, verse 9 says, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that can't perfect the conscience. They are temporary solutions. They can't purify the inner person. 
And that's the whole point. This was a this was a tangible and physical reminder that sin was still a powerful barrier to any kind of fellowship with God. When we talked about the beginning of chapter 8, which says some similar things, we used an, a couple of analogies I want to remind you of that I think can help us see how this, this tabernacle functioned for Israel. Think of, the, think of the presidential rope line. You know, this is campaign season. We're going to see a lot of this. After a campaign event, a lot of times, the presidential candidate will come down into this area that's been roped off. And outside the rope are throngs of people who want to shake his hand, people who want their babies kissed, whatever. They're all out there. And he comes to them because he wants to be near them. The rope line is a means for him coming to them and and having a sort of relationship with them. He wants that closeness. But the rope line, at the same time that it offers a way to get close to this person, also keeps you back from this person. It says, you can come this far but no further. It says, you have not been screened in a certain kind of way. You are not worthy of his direct presence. Think about the tabernacle and even the two divisions of the tabernacle that these verses talk about as a kind of rope line. It is God coming to us. He wants to see us, to know us, to be in some sort of relationship with us, but but something is still there keeping us from fully connecting to him. It's like a rope line. Another image that I think fits especially well for what we're, looking, what we're looking at today is the image of a video game with multiple levels and how you're, you, get, you get stuck in this one world for a time until you achieve the right objectives, right? Until you, you know, defeat the Bowser and save the princess or whatever. And until you've done that, you can't, you can't make it to that next level. So all the trappings of this one level are just a reminder to you that you haven't reached the next level yet, that you're stuck, right? I think, what, I think what verses 8 and 9 help us to see is that this tabernacle, this physical space, even the way it was laid out, was meant to show that the objectives had not yet been accomplished, that there was something missing in everything that was being done that was preventing this relationship from being fully healed. Something meant that we were waiting for the time of reformation. The great contrast comes in the next two verses. Verses 11 and 12. With Jesus, what our author has called the time of reformation has actually come. Jesus has entered into the actual presence of God. That's what these verses describe, that he has passed through not a tent that's made by human hands, but through an eternal, a a permanent tent that represents God himself. He has passed once and for all into the presence of God, healing the relationship for good. That's what it shows. Jesus has beaten the level. He has accomplished the objectives, and now he's there. That's what verse 12 says. He has entered once for all into the holy places, and here's how. Don't miss this. The reason Jesus goes where no other high priest was able to go, the reason Jesus provides for the full and complete healing of the most important relationship in any of our lives is that Jesus came into God's presence not with the blood of bulls or goats, but with his own blood. That's what verse 11, or verse 12 says. He came by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Now, 
Let me read this verse for you in light of what we've been saying about punishment and about the significance of blood. The problem with those earlier sacrifices, with the the blood that the high priest took into the most holy place once a year, is that it, it just wasn't valuable enough. It just wasn't good enough blood. Yeah, it represented the fact that this offense costs everything, not just money, but everything. But this everything of a bull or a goat wasn't nearly up to the weight of what it was to have sinned against God. The punishment, in other words, didn't fit the crime. That's why this offering had to be made every year. Every year, again and again, for the hundreds of years that this system was in place, the high priest had to go in and make it. The blood wasn't getting the job done. It couldn't clear, in other words, the elephant in the room that kept us from a free and full relationship with God. Ultimately, nothing could be valuable enough short of us giving our own blood because our offense against God was so weighty that it costs everything from us. Not enough to have a bull stand in our place. We're the ones on the hook. Our sin, in other words, was as valuable as our lives. But the beautiful truth of this passage is that Jesus' blood is even more valuable. With Jesus, we see God himself joined to human form, giving himself up to, to, to pay for the offense done against him. It's what's been called the self-substitution of God. Do you get the beauty in this truth? That the only one capable of addressing the problem that we had created, the only one who is capable of healing the breach that we had imposed on our relationship with God was the very one betrayed by us. But God did not allow our rejection of him to be the last word on our relationship with him. In Jesus, he comes to us. He adds the infinite value of his own divine life to the human blood of Jesus the Christ. And when he gave it up, He gave up something so valuable, something Peter calls so precious, that it outweighs the sins of all who will trust in him. That's why Jesus' blood was necessary. No other blood could do it. So the last thing we want to say is something about what this blood accomplishes. We've seen why blood matters, because our sin is so significant that it costs everything. We've seen why Jesus' blood matters, because if we were left to the blood of bulls and goats, we were never going to get this relationship healed. The only thing that was valuable enough was us, was, was costing ourselves everything, except for Jesus, whose blood was enough to cover all those who would come to him. So now I want us to look more specifically at what Jesus' blood accomplished. That's what the last two verses of our text get at, verses 13 and 14. It's another contrast. He says that if the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, if those things worked in that outer holy place to cleanse the, the bodies, the outside of the people who came to him, then how much more would the blood of the Christ 
be able to cleanse the inside of those who come to him, to purify what he calls the conscience, to purify the conscience from dead works and to set us free to serve the living God. Jesus' blood accomplishes what nothing else could. He heals us on the inside. Go back to the promises of the new covenant that we've been looking at for the past two or three weeks. The thing that separates what Jesus brings from what everything else before him had offered is that that stuff was all focused on the outside. It couldn't make us different, make us new on the inside. But the new covenant is a promise that God is going to change us, and the blood of Jesus is how? Because it is so valuable, it is so precious, that it washes clean even our inner consciences from the things that we have done. I think what what he's getting at in verse 14, this phrase, purify our conscience from dead works, is, is that he's purifying us or washing us clean from the stain of seeking things that lead to death. My, my translation says dead works. And maybe the first thing you think about is like trying to earn your way to heaven through good works. You think about passages like James or some, some of the things in Paul. But actually, some of, the, some of the New Testament writers, commentators that I looked at this week suggest that the, a better way to, to translate that would not be dead works, but works that lead to death. I think that that makes better sense here. What he's purifying us from is the guilt we carry around from choosing the way of death over the way of life and peace with God. We've chosen, in other words, rebellion and idolatry and unbelief. Those are works that lead to death, and we know that because we've sensed that death in our own selves. What we need is to be purified from the fact that we've done those things. And Jesus' blood is up to that job. It can purify us from pursuing the way of death over the way of life. Jesus' life outweighs all of this and wipes us clean. And here's the beauty in it. Don't miss this. Jesus' blood accomplishes what even a perfect track record from here on out can't accomplish. It gives us a purified conscience. It erases our bad track record. Don't miss this. We're closing here. Don't miss this. Hebrews from the beginning has been trying to make us a case for why Jesus offers a salvation no one else can, for what makes him exclusive, for why it's not just a matter of preference, whether you trust in Jesus to save you or the system of the Old Testament or whatever else that it might be for you. Jesus is the only one who can save you. That's been his case all along. And here I think we get to an extremely important plank in that case. Many of the religions in the world present themselves as a way of behaving from here on out, as a way of changing the life that you're living now, as a a path to reformation, to maybe more peace and more, more joy and fulfillment in your life. Jesus is certainly that, but he's also far more than that. What a call to just change the way you behave can never do is fix the fact that you haven't behaved what you, how you should already that your track record is already marred deeply by your own sin. What Jesus is set up to accomplish for you and what no one else can is to wipe you clean from what you've already done. Let me give you an analogy for it. So so we've been using the analogy of marriage often to, to help us understand this relationship with God because it's one of the relationships that gets closest at it. In a marriage, you're not, you're not signing a certain contract specifying the things that you're responsible for uh, in a very limited and tight way. You're pledging your whole self to that person. That's the difference between a covenant and a contract. 
So in marriage, you owe everything to the person that you're married to. Everything, without exception. Now, if you were to cheat on your spouse, to step outside of that marriage, you can't make up for that by being faithful from that point on. You already owed faithfulness from that point on, right? You already owed them everything. So being faithful from the point that you failed to the end of your life only gives them what you owed them already from the point that you failed to the end of their life. It can't fix the fact that you failed. Similarly, we owe God, our maker, the Lord of heaven and earth, everything about our lives. We owe him complete and perfect faithfulness. And we've already, all of us, failed him. So fixing our lives and starting to clean up our act now doesn't get it. It doesn't get it done. What we need is someone who can purify us of the stain that we've already placed on our lives. No other religion offers this. It is only in Christianity that God comes to us in his grace to give to us what we owed to him and failed to deliver. Only Christianity promises a blood that is powerful enough to wipe our conscience clean. You need it. You may not recognize it, but you need this blood. I know you're carrying around burdens. You're carrying around guilt because you have not lived like you should. And, and one of the ways that we address our guilt is just by sort of beating ourselves up over it. We don't let ourselves let go of the burden for the things that we've done. And part of that is because we don't understand what it is to trust in Jesus. We think that we've got to make amends for what we've done, and we can't. We're, like, we're on a treadmill because we already owe everything that we could possibly do. There is no way to make up for what we've, what we've cost. You aren't going to get out of that cycle until you trust Jesus to purify you, to wipe clean a stain that you can't wipe clean. That's the beauty that's in Hebrews 9, and it's the subject that we're going to be unpacking together for at least the next month. Let's pray now to our Father that he'll help us to see it and to love it. Lord, we need you to help us to understand things that are so foreign to us that we are told here our life itself. We want to see and savor the beauty of Jesus' blood. Would you help us to do that? Would you protect us? our minds from all of the narrowness that we impose on them, from the way that we tend to check out when something isn't immediately obvious to us? And would you give us the perseverance that we need to push through that and to, and to see the promise of Jesus' blood for what it is, that, it, that in it is life itself? I also pray for those sitting here this morning who are weighed down by consciences that are impure, Would you wash them clean by the blood of Jesus? Purify them and help them to know it. Set them free to serve the living God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.